1: And this is episode 2,582, 2582 of the Survival Podcast. It's Thursday. Time for a listener call show. We haven't done one of these in a while. I've got a lot on the back burner with calls, so I thought we'd get caught up today. Here's what we're going to talk about today. I've got a call that's more on like kind of local CSAs and food clubs and stuff. And I've talked about the upside of this. I'm going to talk about some of the challenges of this and why some people that want to grow food for a living that think I'm going to grow food for a living and then do this ought to get on just with trying to do this and maybe let somebody else grow the food at least at first. Uh, next, what happens to returned items at megastores like Costco? No one's ever asked me that before. Um, I'll give you some. We don't know exactly what happens with everything, but we have a pretty good idea what happens with most things, and I'll, I'll give you some answers on that. Um, Jason from PA calls all the time. Said he he got a real Christmas tree this year. What the heck do you do with it once Christmas is over? Um, I talked recently about not getting too wound up about the potential for uh, if you poison rodents on your property. If a dog eats the rodent, that the dog's going to turn around and die. Um, there's a question I never thought I would get. What happens if a snake eats that rodent and not a wild snake? Cause ball pythons don't call call around wild. And I'm going to say don't do it, but we'll talk a little bit about that and a little bit more understanding about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying about using poison on rodents. Um, then I have a question. How do filters like the Versa Blue filter compare to Berkey systems? They sure sell costless. So what aren't you getting? Uh, and is there a, a less expensive option to a full-on Berkey system to get full-on Berkey performance? We'll talk about a way that people do that I've never really talked about before. Um, a guy asked me, what would I do if they came to get my guns? And not targeting me as an individual. not Like they said, Jack, you're nuts, and we need to take your guns away. Um if Texas did some of the things Virginia's talking about doing and actually started going door to door, what would I do? There's a big it depends there, and we'll talk about that. That's a deep subject. And then I got a question on electrically heating soil for your garden to extend seasons using a, a heating cable, which is something I'd never heard of. And I checked into this, and I'll, I'll give you some thoughts on actually how to, to get the same result a lot more reliably for less money and actually not have to just throw something away every year or two. We'll talk about all that and more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear uh, our quote of the day today. Um, Bernard Baruch said this. Now, I'm not exactly a fan of Bernard Baruch. This is uh, an economic advisor to people like Woodrow Wilson and FDR. So I'm not exactly a fan of the man or his entire body of work. But when people say something that is... uh, that is poignant and it is something accurate and something that makes you think, I really don't care where it comes from. I'll quote anybody. And in this case, Bernard Baruch made a quote that I think can help you with determining solutions, sometimes for yourself and sometimes at a much larger level, uh, with the troubleshooting mentality that we try to teach here with system design thinking. Yeah. This is what Mr. Baruch said. Millions, Saw the apple fall, but Newton was the only one who asked why. Now that just on the surface like, wow, that's yeah okay. But I want you to think of it bigger than just solving the problem of uh, developing a theory of gravity. This is a much bigger statement. This is not really about Newton per se or an apple per se. Even if that, I'm not even sure that that story is exactly true. But what I tell you is I've seen many situations where people have come up with very innovative solutions using existing things. And people kind of crap on it like, well, yeah, anybody could have done that. But they didn't. But they didn't. The person that actually saw the potential of taking this thing and that thing and putting those two things together – and causing it to do this other thing that no one else had really done. And sometimes these are innovative solutions that solve very complex problems. And the reality is almost everything we need to get where we want to go already exists. It's all about understanding the ways to assemble it and put it together. Millions saw the apple fall, but Newton was the only one who asked why. Don't just ask why, ask how. Remember, your brain is the most powerful self-learning computer in the known universe. There might be some place where there's a smarter thing, but not that we know of. The most powerful thing in the world as a self-learning computer is the human brain. And we get that computer to go to work not by giving it directives, but by asking it questions. When we make a statement, we shut that computer down. When we ask a question, we fire it up. Ask, why did that apple fall? How does that apple fall? And what does it mean when that apple falls? And how can I use the fact that the apple falls? And the apple here, yes, folks, is a metaphor. Uh, with that, before we get into your calls today, I thought it would be cool if we just started maybe uh, a couple times a week, you know, Thursdays and Fridays. I don't really do commercials. So uh, maybe it would be a good idea to just start reminding you of some of the discount vendors that you get discounts from in the MSB because there is so much – in the MSB, I think it becomes easy to forget all the cool stuff that I've negotiated discounts for you guys on. Um, Short-lane gun adapters is one that I brought to you about two years ago, and I think this one is kind of underrated. What these things do is they go into shotguns, and they will let you do things like fire a twenty two long rifle out of a 12-gauge shotgun, or a thirty eight Special, or a forty four Magnum, or even turn a shotgun into a muzzle loader. They come in all different sizes and lengths, uh, some are smoothbore, some are rifled. You can even turn a 12 gauge into a 17 HMR. And the damn things are fairly freaking accurate, too. How about 12 gauge to 45 Colt? There's just so many things that you can do. I know Dave Canterbury's a big fan of these, he works with this company, too. And uh, I secured you guys a great discount. There's a lot of options under 100 bucks. There's some real simple options, too, just so you can kind of plink and play around with that shotgun and do more with it for under a hundred bucks, you buy any of those under a hundred bucks, you get 15% off. If you buy any individual item or any group of items that are more than a hundred dollars, you get 20% off. So if you were going to buy, let's say, um, here, I'm looking right now at the 12 gauge to uh, 45 Colt. And that costs 99 bucks. Let's, let's not do that one. Cause that's only 15%. That would save you $15. Um, Let's say you got yourself uh, two of the long, eight-inch-long rifled adapters for $100 apiece. Okay, 20%, that's $40. An MSB membership is 50 bucks. So when I say the MSB pays for itself, here I'm just picking one item kind of at random, and I'm going to go through all of them over the next few weeks uh, for you. But consider be- becoming an MSB member. Not only are you supporting the show, but there's an example right there of just one or two orders can pay for the bulk of your membership. And we got so many other great options in the MSB. Uh, you can go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to sign up and to learn more about the discounts that we give you. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into your first call of the day. This one on kind of local CSAs, food clubs, etc. Hey,
0: Jack. This is
2: from North Carolina. Had some feedback for you regarding your recent show about uh, food membership co-ops. Uh, community support agriculture something along those lines we were talked about business models uh, here in North Carolina we have a company called The Produce Box that my wife and I patronize. Um it's actually somewhat similar to what you were describing if you go to theproducebox.com uh, you can uh, see what I'm talking about but we're able to select every week from a selection of boxes that have different vegetables different fruits in them and uh, we pick the box that works best for our family and the uh, for upcharge, you can change out the items that are in it. Um, but usually the variety that they have is, is sufficient for what we're looking for. Fresh kale, tomatoes, etc. They try to source things locally, but in the case of, like, a banana, obviously you're not going to get a banana in the Carolinas in December, but they, uh, are sourcing from, uh, produce suppliers as well, and they tell you where the food comes from. We've gotten kale from here in North Carolina. Uh, we've gotten tomatoes when they're in season, etc. Um, and it works out really well for our family. Just wanted to throw that out there and uh, also give you a website, theproducebox.com, Um, and I believe you can actually pull up a sample menu just to see what I'm talking about. Uh, but I, I do hope to see stuff like this in other areas in the future because this has been awesome. Be able to get fresh produce and also then artisan items, which I know they're able to make pretty decent money on and markup. But it's been really good for our family. I will talk to you later. Thank you for the show and happy new year. Bye.
1: So that's that's more of like a buyers club than a CSA. A CSA would be you have a farmer. And he sells memberships in, in his farm. And let's say it was a greenhouse farmer that could farm year-round to make it a little bit more palatable to people. And what that would mean is this week there is X amount of whatever. And it, and if we sold 40 memberships, then we make up 40 boxes. And it could be biweekly, monthly. It all depends on what we're growing, where we're at, et cetera. And you get that box. And that's what you get. And if the farmer has a really bad week or a really bad month or a really bad spring... You don't get a lot. That's a traditional CSA. Then there are kind of direct sales club models that are all really from like one or two farms working together. And then there's a true buyer's club. And a lot of times these things get labeled co ops, they get labeled, labeled CSAs or whatever, but what they really are is just a a, 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 a you know a, a buyer's club. Because obviously if you're selling bananas, it like you said, if you're in the Carolinas, it's not being locally produced. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And that actually, the reason I want to bring this on is it actually addresses one of the big problems that a lot of these models have. And that's that people, number one, want choice. And I'll tell you where you can see that is in the clothing department, especially the women's clothing department, but men as well, in any major department store. If you go look at the clothing, and especially, like I said, women's clothing, you'll realize that more than half of what's in there, literally no one's ever going to buy. And the store knows no one's ever going to buy it. The people that made that clothes know no one's ever going to buy it. They might sell a few here and there, but overall, there 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 is no plan to move that merchandise. That additional fluff is there to sell the other half of the merchandise that somebody might actually buy. Because if you only put half of what they put in there in there, and it was all the stuff that people might actually buy, people would walk in and say there's nothing to pick from. That's how the human mind works. The human mind likes to pick. It likes the the illusion of choice, even if the choice is false. The, 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 the When you go to a grocery with a really great produce section... of the people would tell you, I love this store because look at the produce section. They have pretty colored peppers and all this, like a Whole Foods or a Central Market or something. But that person goes there and buys the same five or six things every week. A buyer's club allows that person to buy the things they really want and not be stuck this week with a bunch of watercress because that's what Jack grew. But there are more and more people that are more open to this and they're starting to see this Wow, I got a, a thing of watercress in a and it's in a it's in water. Why is it in water? Because uh, it'll die and look like crap in a day if we don't do that for you. So it's living now, and you have a week to use it. And uh, if you bring the container back, we'll rinse it out and reuse it again next time we have watercress. And they're like, "Well, I'm going to go home and find out what to do with watercress." And some of these places where people go pick their food up, they're starting to build community, and you see it in some of the the videos I've watched where. The the, the the customers are actually forming a community inside their own customer network and they're standing around when they're picking their stuff up and they're hanging out kind of before they leave, sharing ideas and recipes and what to do, and that's awesome. But this is a very tiny niche right now. And I think that if you care about local food and you want to help local food producers and you want to make a living doing it, the model that's better than growing food is selling food. Because it's the thing that people struggle with the most. And it takes a hustle to make this happen. But there is plenty available. There's plenty of supply. There's plenty of supply. And if you can develop a channel and you really want to become a producer, when you get that channel developed, now you can look at it and say, what would this channel really like that I can produce? And then you can produce as much as your channel can handle. Because if farming was as easy as you grow this thing and you put it out the door, anybody could do it. And again, we're not talking about corn and beans and, 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 and stuff like and wheat. Because that's how corn, bean, wheat works. It also doesn't, it's the, it doesn't pay shit. It doesn't pay shit. Without subsidies, it, is, it wouldn't be a farm in America doing it on anything from 100 to 100,000 acres that wouldn't be bankrupt in a year, the way that it's being done. It is only subsidies that make it not even profitable, survivable. But that's how that kind of farming works. When you're done for the year and you've got 800 bazillion pounds of soy, it just goes out the door and down the road somewhere and you get paid for it. Lettuce and basil and chickens and all those other things at that high quality level don't work that way. Growing food is easy compared to ensuring that it's sold in a timely manner. But it is the person that can go full-time, even part-time full-time, if you want to look at that as a thing, and say, my job is going to be to find 50 people that want to buy at least $50 worth of food a week. Now, I don't think that's that hard, because when you go to a grocery store, there's a couple hundred people in there, and all of them are spending more than $50. But 50 people, $50 a week, like clockwork, if you're only making 30%, $750 a week in your pocket profit and that's a 30% profit including what it costs you to drive or whatever else you got to do to get it done. But that also doesn't that actually put perspective on how hard it is to make it as a small farmer selling locally? 50 people, $50 a week, 2500 bucks. Even if they're coming to pick it up from your farm. You know, how many things can you do that are less work and make more money? This is why this is difficult. And it's why that we need to be innovative. That's why we need to think differently. It's why we need to ask, oh, why did that apple fall? How did that apple fall? And what does it mean when the apple falls that way? And how can I use these things to my advantage? This is not as easy as people make it sound. But it absolutely can be done. I leave leave you with that to think about how you might manipulate things to make it work for you if that's what you want to do or how you might empower others to do it if you want to be a customer of something like this. Because if somebody came to my door right now and and laid it out for me, and I could get stuff that I'm not growing myself that I'm going to use, I'd be one of those 50 customers. Well, let's take another one. This one on uh, returning items. This is a question I've never had before. Hi,
0: Jack. That's something I don't dare say at the airport but would love to say to you. Uh, I have a question. What happens to all those items that I return to Costco and other big box stores? I love Costco, especially its ease of return policy. I find myself often buying things just to try them out and often returning them, but they're not quite a good fit or up to expectations. But what happens to those items I return? I consider myself a concerned environmentalist and wish Costco and other stores I support with my business to be profitable and stay in business I also hope that many of these items returned do not go to the landfills, thus polluting the planet and losing the company business. Um, at the same time, I'm concerned that I may be buying someone else's rejects or defective items. I understand that the decision is probably easy for things like returned lettuce or chicken, which must be tossed for safety reasons. Some items like diamond rings can easily be cleaned and resold. But what happens to all the other stuff? How does the business decide? what to do with these in-between returns. I think it could make a great podcast from this subject, so uh, it's in your court now. Thanks. Bye-bye.
1: So I actually reached out to Costco and was able to get a reasonably succinct answer on this one. Uh, First of all, food, and this didn't surprise me at all. With the exception of, like, canned food and a few items that are considered permanently sealed, and they weren't really able to explain exactly what that meant, um, if if it's food, it's thrown away due to health and safety regulations. So if it's you know if it's a number ten can of ranch style beans that you bought by mistake, however you did that, and it's unopened, like it's it, it's completely tamper resistant, that can actually go back on the shelf. When it comes to items like you know anything from a, a calculator to a TV set, any kind of consumer level item. If the box has never been opened, they just put it back on the shelf. If it's been opened, they ask you if there's anything wrong. Is it defective? Did it break? Do you just not like it? Like, what is the deal? And if it's a defective product, depending on the deal that they have with the manufacturer, it either goes back to the manufacturer and it's the manufacturer's problem, or Costco will dispose of it. If it's not damaged, depending on what it is, you know what time of year it is, et cetera. It can, it can end up back on the shelf sold at a reduced price, or it can end up back on the shelf sold at the same price it was never opened. So that's, that's the basics. Uh, it's an interesting question. And the, the real answer to it, though, is, okay, that's Costco. That different companies have different policies. Amazon takes a lot of the stuff that comes back. They, they, they just take random mixed-up pallets of returned items, And they sell the whole pallet to secondary resellers, some of whom unpack it all, look at it all, examine it all, list it on Amazon as a used item, and sell it on Amazon. That happens all. There's people that make their entire living flipping pallets on Amazon. So different stores have different policies. But the one thing that's uniform from everybody I've ever talked to is food. And you can't even get a hold of food to compost or feed to chickens legally there are supermarkets that say you know dude look every wednesday at four o'clock produce manager throws everything we got to get rid of in the dumpster in the back and don't nobody really pay attention to what's going on back there but if if anybody asks i didn't tell you that but legally they can't give you Food that they throw away, even if it's going to be used for composting or 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 livestock feed, which I find to be just reprehensible. We're sending quality nutrient to a landfill, and it's 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 disgraceful. And to me, it's a bigger problem than you know, kind of the uh, the consumer good because the consumer good is is either usable and it's going to be sold to somebody to use it. Or it's so defective it needs to be disposed of because it's broken or something. Now the other side of that is there's a lot of stuff that's being manufactured today that's purely junk to uh, to feed our insatiable uh, quest for more things to fill the empty hole in our in our souls that we think we can fill with stuff. But most things, you know, that people actually spend good money on or to have some function. Somebody else will want it and there are secondary markets that so a lot of stuff goes to. So it's usually only completely disposed of when it's in some way defective, which is well what you would expect to happen to defective things. Um next up, I got a question here on uh Christmas trees.
0: Hi Jack, Jason from PA here. This year, I moved into a new home, had a beautiful foyer, and in the first time in five years, I had a nice, full-size, live Christmas tree. Oh, beautiful, wonderful, cherished moment with my kids. So in about a week, that tree is going to be de-ornamented and tossed out. Is there anything I can do with that to benefit my garden, my backyard, to make it you know, more nutrient-ready, accessible, you know, just thought I'd ask and see what I could do besides just putting out my Christmas tree in front of the house like all the neighbors.
1: So, this is the thing about Christmas trees that makes them difficult to deal with if you don't have a chipper shredder. They're really bulky and bushy, and they're 90 percent, if we was cutting trees for wood, what you would refer to as as slash. We have wood and slash, and Bollwood is the stuff that we really like for our firewood. Well, we cut a great big, long, tall tree. We cut all of the branches off of it, and then we buck that main branch that m- main trunk of the tree into wood that's either small enough to just burn as it is or big enough to be split one or multiple times. That's your bolwood. And then all that other crap is slashed, and it's generally a pain in the ass. And there might be some big limbs on some bigger trees that we can, you know, limb those off and and, and, and buck those into, you know, reasonable-sized piece of firewood. But there's a whole bunch of leftover that really just is a pain in the ass. It's bushy. Nobody that cuts trees for firewood likes it. Uh, and then it's either pushed together or let dry out, and it's either burned or it's spread out or it's put through a shipper shredder. Uh, or in some cases, it's used to build you know, habitat for rabbits and things like that, depending on where you're at. But the problem with it is it can be a pretty big fire hazard when, you, do, when you, know, you make brush piles out of it and things like that. If you're doing that, you need to be thinking about, well, what's around that brush pile? How big is that brush pile? How far does that thing go, et cetera? The way we get things to break down and improve soil is we get them at least partially in contact with the soil. When we get wood that's not treated or not some sort of super wood with a built-in fungicide like the heartwood of black locust, because people think black locust doesn't make a good chop-and-drop tree. Well, people are wrong. All of those branchy, bushy parts of black locust, that stuff breaks down fast. It's the heartwood of, of, of main trunk and main limbs, that has that last forever quality to it so unless it's that if we take untreated wood you know unless it's something like again a, a black locust heartwood cedar etc it doesn't take long if that stuff gets and stays damp for fungi to infiltrate it and then it just be the fungi are the teeth of the forest and they break it down so if you want to deal with a live Christmas tree it's now a dead Christmas tree you really need to Take all the slash off of it and cut it up in small pieces, and then you can mulch with it. It won't be nice pretty mulch like shredded wood or chipped wood and branches and leaves, but it'll work. The problem with most species of trees that we use for Christmas trees is they have a lot of sap, just like Chevy Chase said in the old movie from the 80s, Lots of sap, a lot of sap. And they dry out really quick, and that's why they're fire hazards if you don't take care of them properly uh, in your home. And when they go up, they go up hard. Well, just because it went outside doesn't mean that that changes. And if you've ever taken a well-dried-out Christmas tree and set it on fire, you know what I'm talking about. It burns hot and fast, and there's a lot, of, lot that it can do to then spread to other places. If we have a controlled area, burning it and using the ash for potash, is is valid because wood ash is a great fertilizer. So we either cut it up or we burn it. Now, I've seen some pretty cool things. One thing I saw on Facebook this year, there's a dude, he does kind of the cut it all up thing and, and, and put it out and use it for, for the soil improvement. But he takes the trunk and he takes a few slices with his chainsaw off the big main trunk and then they make ornaments out of the tree. So you have that little kind of placard, you know, think of like a one-inch thick slice of the tree across the the main trunk. And, you know, they carve into it or or decorate it in some way. And I I thought that was really cool because then every tree every year has ornaments from all the trees before. And if I was somebody with kids and I started that tradition, I would make at least one for me and one for each of my children and maybe two or three more if you've made them all the same even, because one day you're going to have grandchildren. And how cool would it be to have a collection of family heirlooms of ornaments made from the Christmas trees over the years? But if you want it for soil improvement, it's got to make ground contact, and we got to get it into lots of small pieces. Um, Now, here in Texas, some of the cities, like where I used to live in Arlington, they had programs where you bring your tree in they had like th- you know 3 weeks after christmas every weekend this place was open and you take your tree there and you just throw it in a pile and they'll take care of it and that helps get rid of them and they're not out on the side of the road you know trying to get the garbage people to do whatever and what they did have a big old industrial chipper shredder and city employees whipped them in there and on the other side where the chips came out any resident of the city could go there with any proof that they lived there like their driver's license with their address was sufficient and they would just load a full pickup and i mean they would load it like to, like if they put any more on you'd be a hazard going down the road and give you a free um a free truckload of mulch and if they got toward the end of it and they still had more left you could come back and get it, and then there was a fee you could pay if you wanted not to wait. If you wanted two loads, your second load would cost you some money. Um, and they, they used it, whatever was left after that, the city used it in any of their landscaping. So I think that's something that, you know, depending on the size of the area you live in at a city or county level, could be fairly easily organized because there are very few you know large cities – or counties of significant population where they don't have the equipment to do this. And if they don't have the equipment to do this, what they have are contractors who do work all the time anyway that have that equipment that they could make an arrangement with to do this. So uh, I will say one thing. You look at a Christmas tree, that's pretty big. You mulch a tree, and you see why people mulch trees. One Christmas tree doesn't make but a couple buckets if you're lucky full of mulch. One of the things people think about is buying a chipper shredder, and I think we talked about this recently. You gotta you gotta put a lot of stuff through a chipper shredder, a consumer level one especially, to get enough mulch for that thing to pay for itself, plus the gas, plus the maintenance that that you get out of it. If you're constantly pruning or something like that, uh, you can set something. Especially, I mean, if here's what it would take for me to put my money into buying. One. Number one, I'm not going to buy the $600 one, the entry-level one. I'm going to have to go up to like a 1000 bucks, kind of the next tier, to have one good enough to be worth having. So if you're in a grand, I'm going to need an area that's like you know a covered area where it can pretty much stay outside. And I'm going to have to be feeding something into it at least every other week on a significant level, or it's not worth having. You're better off renting one from Home Depot or Lowe's, the smaller ones that you can rent. Uh, that's my thoughts on that. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. This one on uh, rat poison and reptiles. I, another couple questions this week that I just never saw myself ever answering on the air. Hey, Jack.
2: Aaron from Brooklyn, New York here.
1: Question. You previously mentioned
2: that having a cat or dog eat a mouse that had some poison in it wouldn't really kill it because the dose wouldn't be high enough. Is the same true for, for snakes, specifically a ball python? Thank you so much, and have a great day.
1: So before I answer the question, let's kind of remind people where we're at with this so that I am understood in what I'm saying. I had a real issue with rats, even with my cats doing all that they could, Uh, here on the property causing problems in certain areas. And eventually I resorted to using old cobbler's poison, rat poison, which I hate using any poison or toxin. But I hate rats eating all my food, climbing into my attic, tearing up my electrical shit, uh, tearing the insulation out of my barns, etc. more. And I had this this hang-up that so many people do. If I do this and my dog eats a rat, my dog's going to die. And so when I started looking into it, I talked to exterminators, and I talked to veterinarians, and I talked to manufacturers of these toxins. And most of them aren't heparin, but it's the closest thing that you know that you can compare it to is is, is heparin. And basically you're giving the rodent what amounts to an overdose of a blood thinner. So they're bleeding out internally. And th- anything that's going to do that has a a tolerance level. In other words, if you there are people that take heparin to thin their blood and they take it every day and not only do they not get sick or die depending on the condition they have it may in fact save their life. Now if that person gets a serious wound they have a greater risk of bleeding out than someone who's not on heparin. So it's not completely risk free just so we're clear. Well, there's enough in there so that when, you know, a, a half pound rat or mouse eats a couple bites of it, it will, in general, prove fatal to that animal over time. That doesn't mean that the animal won't crap any of it out or excrete any of it. So even what that animal ate, there won't be 100% of it in the animal. If your dog finds a dead rat, it may or may not eat it. My animals tend not to eat an ant- like a, a, a dead Stinking animal. Some dogs, I mean, I had a Brittany Spaniel one time. I had to learn the trick, for, learn the veto, call the vet and learn over the phone how to make a dog vomit with uh, hydrogen peroxide by giving them a specific dose and it makes them regurgitate because it ate, he ate a, I mean, maggot infested, rotting, stinking rabbit off the road and he ate it down whole. So there are dogs that will do it. My dogs generally don't, which further mitigates an already f- fairly mitigated risk. Next, the amount necessary to kill a one-pound rat is a hell of a lot less than the amount necessary to kill a 30-pound dog, or in my case, like, my smallest dog's almost 70 pounds. My biggest dog's 150. They would literally have to gorge themselves on rats to get anything approaching a toxic dose. Now, your question. First of all, Just because of everything I said doesn't mean if my dog liked to eat dead rats, if I was using a poison and I found a rat that died apparently of that poison, that I would take that rat and feed it to my dog. I'd I'd still prefer that dog not to eat that animal, okay, for a variety of reasons, in addition to the potential that it's dead because I poisoned it. So the only way a ball python is going to eat a rat that was poisoned with old cobblers or some other form of rat toxin is you fed it to a pet cuz we don't have ball pythons in Texas or South Carolina or Florida wherever you are crawling around outside. Next, you know, even a rather large ball python is fairly small in in body weight. So I would think that there's a much greater risk like I do worry a little bit about maybe one of the cats eating one of these rats that's been poisoned. I'll tell you another reason I think it's 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 far more mitigated than people think though. Because um, they, they have a lot less body weight. But the average ball python weighs way less than my 16-pound freaking tomcat. So you have a body weight thing there. And the next is, we're talking about a reptile with a totally different physiology than a mammal. I don't know at all whether that animal might be completely immune to this toxin or far more susceptible to it. So I just wouldn't do it. Now, I guess that begs the question, what if this animal dies... And your native, like kingsnake or something that you don't want to harm eats it, is there potential for that animal to die? I guess there is. But I think it's fairly minimal. And I'll I'll tell you the other reason why. When I use this stuff and I found rats that died from it, within a day after they die, they look like somebody put them in a freeze dryer. It completely dehydrates and damn near mummifies them and I have caught my dogs playing with them, but they don't eat them because I don't think they're very appetizing. And I doubt a snake would eat a dehydrated rat. Freshly dead on its way down, sure. I will add to this, it's important that you all understand, I'm not advocating for the wholesale use of toxins. And if you're going to do this, you need to be mindful about how you do it. Knowing that it would take a large number of ingested rodents to be a threat to my animals... What I did is I picked an area. Let's say when they were infesting my greenhouse and aviary, and I took one of the the poison distribution things, the, I don't know what you call them, uh, but they're an excluder. Only something about the size of a rat can get in there to get the toxin. And I put two sticks in it, and I put it in the greenhouse where there is no way the dog could get to it, but rats can climb anything. And I left it in there, and when I checked it two weeks later there wasn't a scrap of that toxin left in there. So then I put one in it, not two the second time, and I went back in two weeks, and it had been nibbled on, but it was still mostly intact, meaning that I'd pretty much knocked the population in the, in, in the ass and knocked it out. I then added a fresh one, so it had pretty much two in it, and I put it in the aviary where I'd seen rodent activity, and I did the same thing inside there. Once that was knocked out, my back barn, we also had some activity. I had a place where the dogs couldn't get. There was like a thing up against the wall and a narrow pathway the rats could use, and I put one in there. And I did the same thing, small amounts at a time, until they stopped taking it. And then I got rid of them in my my duck coop. And we don't really have a problem with them anymore. And if I see activity or I hear activity where that activity is taking place, I'll take that approach. I didn't put... 20 of them out full scale all the time everywhere nonstop now the other thing you can do once you get the population in check is in a couple spots you can keep these things out as long as you again you got to make sure they have two it's like a nuclear bomb you need two keys turned at the same time to open the damn things though i think a determined dog could probably tear one open so you got to put it somewhere that is a double exclusion and then that way, as, you know, rats start to come around, instead of trying to kill 500 rats, you get that one rat that comes around and goes, Hey, this is a cool place. I like this. I think I'll make a nest here and make some rat babies. And then she goes in there and she eats a couple bites of that and she dies. It's one rat. So this can be used safely, but if you have a big rat problem, you need to use it in phases and give time in between them. And if you, and then if you see dead rat, Dispose of it so that your animals don't eat it. But I just don't see Charlie eating 75 rats, if that makes sense. Anyway, I hope that does make sense, and I hope nobody thinks I'm like, just poison everything, because I would prefer not to use it at all. But I haven't found a solution that works better, and I haven't found a solution really that works at all. And I've tried the bucket full of sunflower seeds floating on water and all. I've done plenty of things that kill rats, but not that take care of the problem. All right, better living through Medicinal chemistry. All right, next up, we have a question on water filtration.
0: Hello, Jack. This is Roger in Central Kentucky. I'd like to, for you to compare uh, the Berkey uh, water flow, uh, water filtration system with the Hydro Blue Versaflow. Uh, I've got a Berkey and I like it, but I was considering uh, buying a water filtration system for each of my three kids that are grown, and the Hydro Blue uh, appears to work well. And it could be modified into a five-gallon bucket. Uh, I just wonder if it performs as well. If that's a uh, a less expensive alternative that would work well for my children in their homes, uh, let me know what you
1: think. Thanks. So, you know, I I know it might look like a conflict of interest here because Berkey, the Berkey guy, has been a sponsor of the show for almost as long as there's been a show for almost as long as there's been sponsors on the show anyway, a decade. Um, but I won't hesitate to tell you that a 1995 filter is not going to do what a $300 system will do. And that's probably the case, no matter who's making what there's limitations there. But when I looked up this Versaflow, uh, water filter, here's what I saw on their own page about their own filter. The Versaflow water filter does not remove chemicals or viruses from water. Generally, viruses are not found in North America. Well, generally, a lot of shit's not found in water, but we filter it because sometimes it is. I'm not saying it's a bad product. This filter is made for filtering water out of a stream that probably might be safe to drink but may not be. It's, it's designed to remove things like and et cetera, and stuff like that. Harmful bacteria, gerardia, E. coli, protozoan cyst, and That's the stuff that it's designed to move. Anything that is uh, 0.1 microns or larger in size, it will take out. If I go over to Berkey's uh, website, Jeff the Berkey and pull up the black Berkey element, um, the list of things that it removes beyond that is extensive including things like i'm not even going to embarrass myself uh mispronouncing very long uh, multi-syllabetic latinaic versed chemical words but it is it is a massive amount of things it also removes arsenic and nitrates and selenium and thallium and rust and silt and sediment and uh you know but i mean uh it when you know that says it does not remove chemicals and I'm sitting here looking at a massive number of chemicals that the Berkey systems remove. So the Berkey systems are more expensive than a twenty dollar inline filter designed for a backpacker. There's no doubt about it. And I will say that water that goes through one of those Versa Blues is probably better than water that doesn't. At least you have a more reasonable expectation of safety. And if you were, if you were backpacking and you were drinking from f- fairly clean water sources and you just wanted to make sure that you didn't get some kind of uh, you know, boogaboo because the raccoon took a crap there last night, you know, and even though it looks clean, there's still raccoon crap there and it's full of E. coli, it would be a fine product for what it is, and lots of products like it exist. But it's not going to do what a Berkey water filter system will do. But if you don't want to spend three hundred bucks for a nice stainless steel Berkey, you can go get a set of black Berkey elements, the filters, for one hundred twenty dollars, and you can get two five-gallon buckets and put one over the other one, and drill a couple holes and install these filters, and you can do basically have if you're going to use five-gallon buckets a five-gallon bucket water filter system, and that and as long as it's food grade plastic that you get from those buckets, it's going to filter the same as it does in that pretty stainless steel that their system's coming and look nice in your house. Additionally, Berkey makes some filters that are not quite um, to the to the standard of their own filter, like uh, the black. They have the Berkey Earth elements. They're kind of their um, their entry level product and they still do a bang up job better than this Versa blue thing, and a set of two of those is forty four ninety nine. So if I was going to step down and I was on a money issue, I would buy something like those and build a system and if you want you know you want nice you know be you know how the water filters work with Berkey. you have a nice little nozzle down there a little thing Well you can get a spigot that's made for home brewers and basically drill a hole in the, the the bottom bucket and install that spigot or you just get a bottling bucket for home brewers for your bottom uh, your bottom bucket. You get something like a seven and a half gallon bottling bucket, and that'll let you basically take another five gallon bucket, set it upside down inside it, and then with a hole in it, and then set your top berkey your top bucket with your filters on top of it, and you can put that out in a barn somewhere or something like that if you don't like the way it looks and you know about the only thing you have to worry about is since light can get through those buckets, you could end up with some algae issues over time, though you're not likely to end up with much in the way of algae because, well, there's nothing in the water by the time it gets in the bottom bucket. As long as you get the bottom bucket clean, you're good. So I'm not saying that everything sucks and only Berkey is good. I'm saying that you just don't get the performance from a 20 to $30 backpack product that you get from a purpose-built long-term proven system that's designed to do a hell of a lot more, and that's why it costs more money. So, Anyway, I'll put a link to the uh, the Berkey Black Elements on Jeff's website in today's show. And what I'd like you to do is just take a look at what they remove, and I think that'll kind of answer and quell anybody's questions about how, you know, how come these lower-cost things, why aren't they good enough? Well, they're good enough depending on what's good enough for you. Uh, but when you look at what a Berkey does... You know, you're looking at generally you're looking at things like a reverse osmosis system or something like that to get to the level of quality that you should get out of a Berkey.
2: Hey, Jack. This is Chris. Uh, I was just wondering. I just listened to your last episode. You were mentioning um, about the state uh, and how they were refusing to give up the guns and how basically legislators backed away from it. I'm just curious in your situation. If it ever came down to the point where guns were completely outlawed and they said, we are coming for all your guns, how far will you go? Are you to the point where you're going to be defending yourself and your guns from people taking them? Or would you maybe lose a few of them and forfeit a few? Just curious. Thanks, Chuck.
1: Uh, to be clear, before I even answer this, I did not say that the politicians in Virginia backed down because of resistance. I said it was giving them pause and concern. Um, they, the, the politicians in question just took office in January, and they are moving ahead with some things that seem like they're headlong heading for the boogaloo in Virginia uh, with a showdown that could come to your question getting answered sooner rather than later in some Uh, regional way anyway. There are even counties in Virginia, and one in particular uh, that borders West Virginia, that said, we're not part of Virginia anymore. We're now part of West Virginia. And West Virginia said, okay, this is all getting interesting. And this is something we'll know more about in the coming weeks. And we'll talk more about the specific issues in Virginia with Second Amendment rights as that plays out. Because I'm not going to speculate on things and start either a bunch of trouble that's not worth having or start um, an attitude of don't worry about it when it's warranted. What I said is that the people in in office there are not afraid of getting voted out of office, but they are thinking twice about what they're doing because there are people saying, we're not going to let you do that. And that that type of action often has a better impact or more of an impact than voting ever could. Because voting is just... Who you got to show up this time and what they want and what you think you can get away with. All right. Uh, Also, in a republic, which we're supposed to have, which in some ways we do, in some ways we definitely do not. There are certain rights that are to be inalienable and it shouldn't matter who's in power. They shouldn't be able to do anything like that, which that shows the weakness of the supposed constitutional republic that we have. And our total disregard from the state level of the Constitution in many, many ways. Let's go on from there. Because the horror question is, if there were men coming to my house to take my guns away, would I start shooting at them, or would I just give them my guns, or would I say all my guns are missing, I don't know what you're talking about, or would I have like a small amount? of Well, first of all, if I have any kind of strategic thing that I would do, I'm damn sure not going to be on the air saying exactly what it is. So we'll leave that there. But the other side of it is it depends. I am a big believer in the art of war. And one of the principles of the art of war is you never fight a battle unless victory is certain. And while I don't think you can take that to the total extreme of always knowing that, what that that really means is you never initiate a battle unless it is most likely that you are going to win. And you certainly never initiate a battle that you know you're going to lose. So if it's just me and I'm sitting here at my house with my wife and there's a, an APC full of uh, defect, uh, defector National Guardsmen who don't va- value their oath with, with machine guns, they're going to roll a hole through my fence and come get my guns. I'm not getting up on the roof and going down in a martyrdom. That's stupid. I would not do that. What exactly I would do, I wouldn't know till it happened. What I am telling you is this. I don't think that even in Virginia you're going to see that approach. You have some of these loons in in the government that like the virtue signal, and they'll talk about sending people door to door. But if you if the day that happens in this country, you will have civil war. And I'm going to tell you right now, the people on the left that think all the policemen and all the national guardsmen and all the soldiers will just do what they're told—you you are stupid. There is a shitload of those men and women. Who will either just not participate and opt out, or will walk right over to the other side, turn 180 degrees, and point their guns back at the state that they used to serve? I know those people exist. I've spoken to them, and there's more than you think there are. But I'll tell you who is equally delusional and stupid: to the leftists that think that. You morons on the right that think, well, none of them will ever do it. They won't fire on America. Say, hell, I'll be on our side. You're a dumbass. There are a shitload of people that serve this country in the form of military and law enforcement, that will do whatever the hell they're told like a bunch of dumbasses and do not value their oath and don't even know what their oath means. There are both. In fact, there's three. There are the people that will actively participate in trying to disarm the American citizens. There are those that will actively support an armed resistance. And there's a bunch in the middle that will say, I I refuse to obey this order. I'm not doing this. And exactly what that looks like, anybody that tells you that they know what it looks like, is a liar or stupid. And there's two things you don't want to listen to, liars and stupid people. Because stupid people don't know that they're stupid, and therefore they believe their own bullshit. And liars do know that they're lying, but they want to promote an agenda. And you want to stay away from both of them. So the answer is, I do not know, and it depends. And there are so many variables as to what it depends on. Now, if you ask me, is there, any, is there any world in which Jack Spierko becomes, you know, to, to, to quote a famous movie, a, a member of the Wolverines, that world exists. Exactly what it looks like, where, and how is highly dependent on the situation. What are we talking about here? I mean, the, 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 the grounds that I can stand on is a former soldier and a citizen of this country, even as an anarchist, as a citizen of this country is that the government should at least obey its own rules. And if you're violating the Constitution of the United States, you are an illegal, tyrannical government. Now, how far you are in violation before that comes to shooting, because they say there's three boxes, right? The ballot box, the soap box, actually the soap box, the ballot box, and the ammo box, and please use them in that order. So you have to completely wear out the soap box and the ballot box before you go to the ammo box. But well, there's a point where you do. There's a point where you do. But what happens if this country swings far enough left and don't think that it can't? That in 20, 25 years, when I'm a really old man, not just an old man, there's enough people on board with it to repeal the Second Amendment, and it's done under the constitutional process. The legal argument now is gone. The moral argument is absolutely there, because we do not believe that these specific rights, this right of self-defense, is provided by the Constitution. Rather, we believe that it is defended and protected in a limited capacity by the Constitution, because the right itself pre-exists the Constitution and the country itself, because the right is an innate human right. As a human being, I have a right to self-defense and defense of my property. Period. Period. And how I choose to do that is up to me as long as I don't violate anybody's rights. And to take my property in the form of a firearm because you don't like my ability to defend myself when I've done nothing to harm anybody is immoral. And then we could get onto the whole debate about gun control, which there's no point because we're not going to solve that here. Because there's people that really think by taking away guns from law abiding citizens, you're going to make other people safer. That's just stupid. But it's not actually germane to the question being asked. So if anybody has any illusions that I'll be up on my roof going down like the Wolverine at the end of the first original Red Dawn like a moron standing there firing the hip at a hind helicopter that's going to blow me away, I'm not foolish. But if you wonder whether or not there is a point where if I feel my safety and the safety of my family is is inherently at risk and where I feel that there is, if we actually end up in a civil war, if I'll take a side, the answer is yeah, I will assuming that either side, depending on what your sides you end up with, is worthy. Because a lot of times in a civil war, both sides are not good. That's something else we need to understand. The good news. For the foreseeable future, I don't see this happening. I don't see this happening. Not at a national scale. No way. Anyway, let's take another one. I think we got one more, and then we're done. Hey, Jack. This is Dean uh,
2: from Kansas, and I'm... Uh thinking of putting in a heating cable into a raised bed that's supposed to raise the soil to about 70 degrees. I was just hoping to extend the season for my garden, and I was wondering if you had any experience with this, or if you could recommend it, or is this just a complete waste of time? I appreciate any advice. Thank you very much. Bye.
1: Okay, well, I'd never heard of such a thing before, and this kind of fits with our quote of the day about, you know, taking something that exists and changing it or putting it with something else and making it do something else and finding a solution. So my first thought is I bet what these things are are the cables that you attach to pipes, and they're designed then to keep that pipe from freezing up. Now, the thing about those cables that we put on pipes is they don't heat the pipe up to like 75 degrees. Um, They usually have an on-off kind of along the lines of what Thermocube does of 35 on, 45 off. And what they actually, you know, we don't wrap a pipe in them. They actually usually put them on one, you know, kind of one straight line on a pipe, and then we wrap that pipe. And what that does is it not only heats the water, but it causes the water to kind of circulate in the pipe. And moving water obviously is harder to freeze than stationary water. So a combination of attaching that thing, wrapping the pipe, keeps the pipe from bursting. That's, that's what they're for. I can't say a hundred percent that these things, cause I looked them up, cake, you know, garden soil warming cable on Amazon. Boom, there it is. Sure looks like one, but they don't get warm enough. That this should happen. They don't even kick on until it's colder than, you see what I'm saying? So my guess is somebody looked at that and said, hey, I know what I can do with that. I could I could fiddle with it and change the on-off temperature so that maybe it comes on at like 70 degrees and goes off at like 80 degrees. And that way I could help warm soil to 70-ish degrees. From looking at reviews on them and reading about them, they, and if I do a big Doctor freaking evil air quote, they work. It works. It works, right? Okay, it works. Um, some of the reviews I read were things like I bought four of them. They they worked. And it, by the second season, two of them didn't work anymore. They don't last. And if they are what I think they are, and I'm not sure they are, but if they are what I think they are, It makes sense because they were never designed to work at that range. Now, maybe there's some other thing that they're actually made for that they are designed to work at that range and they should keep working. And I didn't check 100 different brands, but the couple I checked all had significant numbers of people saying after a season or two, the majority of these things stopped working. Now, let's talk about the other side. You didn't say you wanted to get your seedlings off to a fast start. You said you wanted to extend your season. These are not going to do that. Warming soil is to get plants to grow more rapidly and get seeds to germinate more quickly or get seeds to germinate when otherwise the soil temperature would be too cool. That's what it'll do for you. If you have a plant, for instance, let's say a pepper plant, that if it's 30 degrees for any significant period of time in air temperature, um, it's going to die. And you put this cable in the ground and you have it next to your pepper plants, it will do a great job of keeping the lower part of that plant and the roots really warm and keeping it more robust long after the cool temperatures would have kind of knocked it back. But when it goes to 29 degrees overnight and stays there for a few hours, the top of the plant's gonna die and the whole damn plant's gonna die. What might happen with peppers as a perennial is, well, you might be able to cut it off and when the warm temperatures come back, it might coppice. I've seen peppers do that. I had four of them do that in a different but similar situation this year. And they grew really, really aggressively because they had huge root systems. So that may be. But you're, this is not really a season extender um, technology. It's, it's spring. It's cold. You put seeds in the ground. They don't really do very well. We warm the soil, and they grow. So how do we do that in a much more economical and reliable way? We use the sun. Uh, What you want is black plastic. Cover your soil with black plastic. When you're ready to plant, poke holes or cut a slit, plant into those holes or those slits, and you'll warm your soil with the sun. And it's a very good way to do it. And when that sun comes out, even when it's cold out, that black plastic absorbs and holds a lot of heat in. And soil, much like water, is a very good thermal battery. And if we can warm that soil up to 75 degrees in the daytime and it goes down to 30 degrees at night, it's still going to be like 65 degrees in the morning. It's really good about holding warmth. and that's So you want to use row covers like I talked about yesterday or black plastic tarp or something like that to warm your soil. For small applications, spot applications, the other thing you use is like jars, uh, fish bowls, fish tanks. Things like that, just upside down on the soil, will warm that one particular area. Uh, there's an old, old video I have called Using a Fish, ha- a fish Tank as a Mini Greenhouse. I'll uh, I'll find a link to that old video today and show it to you. It's pretty dramatic. I have like an old 40-gallon brewery fish tank in one of my gardens when I lived in Arlington. And you've got the same lettuce, you know, mixed lettuce species, growing in the same bed, in the same conditions, five feet apart. And it's night and day, the ones underneath the fish tank versus the ones not. That's the. T- those are methods that you can use to extend season or grow more in the cold. Uh, warming soil just really is going to speed up germination and make the plants a little more robust, but they have to still be plants that could survive the temperatures that they're in. You might get a little bit of frost protection, but not that much. So... I wouldn't put my money into that. I would find other ways to do things. And if I did, I would get like one of them and try one small bed and see how it worked and see how they lasted before I invested significantly in them. And if I wanted to do that at a larger scale, I'd probably trial that against the black plastic method and see which. if they work the same. You know, you can buy a 100 foot by 10 foot of 4 mil black vapor barrier plastic for 25 bucks. Totally different reasons. Well, not really a totally. For, for a similar reason, I just bought one, so I know. With that, we've wrapped up another edition of the Survival Podcast. i got a big announcement for you guys today, too. Uh, you guys know I've been talking about this vertical farm, indoor vertical farm. I started construction on it uh, this week. Uh, I'm waiting for a rack to arrive tomorrow, and uh, one of the flood trays that I got off Amazon, I found this great, flood trade for this system. Uh, One of them was cracked when it got here. So Amazon's replacing it. That's one of the reasons I love Amazon. Uh, My wife's returning the broken one for me uh, this afternoon. She can drop it off at Kohl's. That's one of the new Amazon return policies. You take it and a label to Kohl's, and they take care of it for you uh, for free. So it's going back, and I'm building that uh, system. There'll be video and all, but how'd you like to come take a look at it, touch it, see it, smell it, whatever? How'd you like to hear a full-on presentation on how to build one and how to build the seed starting system and other things you can do with hydroponics? From me, live and in person. How would you like to hear all about container gardening and wicking beds on a different day? One day and you know, two days in a row, both of those subjects. Well, you can do that by coming to the Mother Earth News Fair in Belton, Texas. I've talked here and there with Mother Earth News over the years. And finally, we've you know decided, hey, we should be working together. And I'm going to be on the 15th and 16th of February presenting at Mother Earth News in Belton, Texas. Uh, on hydroponics uh, one day and then on the next day, the container gardens and wicking beds. And there's going to be some other cool people there, some right out of our own community, and some you've heard a lot about from me. How about Gary Collins? Yeah, expert council member Gary Collins, he'll be there. How about Howard Garrett, Garrett Juice fame? You hear me talk about Howard Garrett all the time. Howard Garrett's going to be speaking there. Nick Burtner, Nick Burtner uh, of, of uh, Permaculture World. Uh, he's a student of Jeff Lawton's, actually a graduate of Jeff Lawton's internship program. Been on the show quite a bit. Uh, done some work with us. He actually taught a class here at my place. He's going to be there speaking. Trad Cot- Cotter I've had on. Trad knows more about mushrooms, forgot more about mushrooms than most people will ever know. Um, John Moody been on a couple times. He was the founder of the Farm to Defense Legal Defense uh, Farm to Table Legal Defense Fund. Uh, he's now part of the Rogue Food Movement. He's been on for a bunch of stuff with us before. Joel Salatin, I don't think he needs an introduction. Jeremy Zimmerman, you know, brew beer like a Yeti and make ye like a Viking, that guy, been on the show a couple times. He's gonna be there. A ton more people. You know, hundreds of vendors and 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 suppliers are gonna be there. Mother Earth News Fairs are amazing, amazing events. And I promise you, there are gonna be a lot of TSP people there because I've heard that there's a shitload of TSP people at Mother Earth News Fairs even when I'm not there promoting it. So I'm thinking now that I'm promoting it, maybe there will be more of them, and maybe some, some of them could be you. If you'd like to go, go by my website. I do have an affiliate link with them, and I can make a couple bucks if you sign up through my link, but tickets start at only 20 bucks. You can get a week on pass for, I think, 25 bucks, And then there's some priority stuff and things like that. But uh, if you go by the site today, you'll see an article that it says, Come see me at Mother Earth News Fair in Belton. If you use the links there, you, you'll help support us. If, if, you, if you can't fit, find it or whatever and you want to just look it up on Google, you can do that too. It's not that big a deal. But I'd, I'd love to see you there. And I'm going to try to put together some kind of TSP event. Uh, one of those two days. Saturday is probably better than Sunday, because Sunday, as soon as it's over, I'm hauling ass home. It's only about two hours away from here, and we'll have things to get back to as well and things to pack up. But I'm bringing the, the vertical farm. is going to Belton, Texas. You can come take a look at it. Next up, if you like the the show and the work that I do and you want to help support us, consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Today's t T-Spaz item of the day, I've talked about it a bunch, so I'll be quick, but it's the Mr. Coffee Electric Coffee Grinders. It's 18 bucks. And I use it for grinding coffee, and I use it for grinding spices, and I pretty much grind some coffee with it daily. I mean, daily I'm grinding it. And a lot of times I'm grinding herbs and spices. And, in fact, I give away one of my go-to rub recipes in the write-up today. So check this thing out. This is how I feel about it. It's so versatile. I hate one-off things. I hate unitaskers. So if it only ground coffee, I'd be mean, like, oh, God, I guess i got to have something to do that. If it only did spices, I'd be like, well, i got to have something to do it. The fact that it does both and does them very well, you know, makes this for 18 bucks something I think that, you know, every kitchen should have one, especially every prepper kitchen. The Mr. Coffee Coffee Grinder, 18 bucks. only one I've ever seen destroyed uh, was the one Nicole Sauce destroyed because she filled it all the way to the top and tried to grind, like, 20 pounds of coffee in 15 minutes with it or something like that. It ain't made to do that. There's a line, a fill line. If you follow that, you'll never destroy it unless you're Nicole Sauce because you don't care about rules. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Song of the Day today is by Tom Petty, and it's called Jammin' Me. And we're in TV Songs Week, Songs About Television. This is about the endless messages of mass media to the point where you just can't take anymore, and there's information overload trying to sell you on concepts and things and gadgets and lifestyles and everything else. Yeah, there's a little bit of that going on. A little bit of jamming coming from the device. That's why we try to do things a little bit differently here at TSP. We try to give you lots of information, almost put you in information overload, but do so in a way that is proactive that improves your life. I hope that that's what we do for you. With that, hope to see you down in Belton, Texas next month. And This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast.